Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. As we continue in our worship, I would draw our attention this morning to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, verses 21 through 24 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, page 928 is where you can find our text this morning. I'm thankful that God speaks and that God has spoken finally and fully in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that God speaks through His Word to us. I pray that that's what we hear this morning from the Bible, we hear God's Word for us, given to us, for our building up, for our edification, for our encouragement, for our growth, for our conviction, for our understanding, for our affections. And it reminds me of, of something even that we read in Sunday school this morning that was Paul's desire to make the word of the Lord fully known. That's why I'm here. Because I want to make the Word of God fully known. So would you stand with me as we read God's Word together out of reverence and respect for what He has given to us. The end of verse 41, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord. And together we will say, Thanks be to God, but we only say it because we mean it. If you don't mean it, don't say it. If you're not thankful for God's word, then please don't say it. But if you are thankful for God's word, then please say it with all your heart. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. 
About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the goddess, the great goddess Artemis, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion But most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, assist me, I pray, and give me clarity of thought, proper expressions, fluency, fervency, a feeling sense of the things I preach from your word, and give me grace to apply them to our consciences. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
one of the most influential thinkers in church history, lived in the 4th century A.D. on the continent of Africa. Specifically in North Africa, he was the bishop of a city that was known as Hippo. And his name was Aurelius Augustinus, or as we popularly know him, Augustine. One of Augustine's greatest works is entitled, The City of God. This very important and very long book tells the story of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. Both of these cities are being built in this world. And Augustine says that these cities have been being built since the beginning of human history. Augustine says there is a similarity in these cities, and the similarity is this. Both of these cities are being built upon love. But the difference is that these two loves are antithetical to one another. They work against each other. They oppose one another. The city of man is being built upon the love of self. We, ourselves, man, become the center of this city. We are the foundation of this city. The city is built out of selfishness and self-centeredness. It's built on self-love. That's the city of man. The city of God, on the other hand, is being built upon the love of God. Obviously, here is a very different foundation, a very different center, a very different focus in this city. It is a focus that moves away from man and who man desires to be and moves outside of man to someone greater, to someone more important, to someone who is completely above and beyond and better than man in every way. It is in this work that Augustine shows how God has sovereignly brought men to build their own city, the city of man, to build empires. But as man builds the city of man, we see over and over and over again that that city never lasts. There's only one city, one kingdom that lasts. It is this kingdom of God that God is building in Jesus Christ, the city of God, the church that will last forever. Augustine's message to us, the church, is this. We should not be surprised to see men's kingdoms rising and falling. Are you surprised by that? You think it's surprising that the world is in turmoil and in upheaval and in disarray? And what amazes me sometimes is that, that we have this little snapshot of our lives. And we look at the world around us, and maybe we even look at the nation that we live in, and we think, there's so much turmoil, there's so, so much upheaval like there's never been before. Really? What do we see time and time again in history? Turmoil, upheaval, empires rising, empires falling. That's the city of man. It should be no surprise to us today. 
what do we see with the turmoil around us? This is exactly what happens to the city of man. That's what the city of man is about. It's about upheaval and disarray. And we should not even be surprised that at times we, the church, will be in conflict with those kingdoms. That is the battle that has been raging on since the curse in the garden, the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But we as Christians are committed to the eternal city, the city that lasts. Our commitment is to Jesus Christ and to His church. Our commitment is to these because it is only the city of God and King Jesus that will last forever. It is this struggle The struggle between the city of God and the city of man that we see here in Acts 19. We might even be able to say that what we see in the city of Ephesus is a reflection, a representation of the city of man that Augustine describes. We see Luke describe the city of of man, the city of Ephesus, as a different kind of church. And why would I say that? Well, as we started down this road last week, in verses 32 and verse 41, Luke, the author of Acts, describes this gathering together as an assembly. And in fact, he uses the same word that other places in the same book we translate as the church. In fact, that's what Acts has been telling us. It's been telling us the whole book has been showing us what the true church looks like, what true Christianity looks like. But now in these verses, we are given a very different picture. Luke here begins to show us what the anti-church looks like. Those who are against Christ, those who are against the gospel, those who are ultimately against the people of God. And Luke gives us some Marks some ways to identify this anti-church. We must be aware of these marks of the anti-church in the world. We should know them so that when we see them, and we will see them, that we will know how to respond to them. That we will be able to respond with the right, right response, with a calm, steady, sure assurance and confidence as we stand against the anti-church. So that when we, as Christ's true church, meet the anti-church, we will hold fast to what is right and true. We will hold fast to the gospel. But it's also important to recognize these marks because there may well be certain lines of thought in these marks that have infiltrated into our own hearts and into our own minds and into our own lives. And that we need to have a firm conviction that there must be in Christ's church no compromise with the anti-church. And that perhaps we need to repent of the ways that the anti-church has sprung up in ourselves. That maybe if we go back to the way that Augustine describes it, that we are committed solely to the city of God. And I think this is at times where we struggle because I think sometimes we try to be committed to both cities. We're trying to have commitment to the city of man and at the same time have commitment to the city of God, but such a commitment will never work. 
simply because of the fact that these two are opposed to one another. Do not let us get lured into all that sparkles and all that shines in the city of man. We cannot and must not think that somehow we can reconcile these two together, that somehow we can make it work, that somehow we can be committed to both and have allegiance to both. It's like trying to serve two masters. It cannot be done. We have to know these marks because we will encounter them in this world, and we must know these marks because the thinking of the anti-church can even try to reside in us. Last week, we began with point one. This week, we will fill out the rest of points two and points three. So, good news this morning. I'm not going to cover all three points, just the last two. If you need to hear the first one, you can go back, listen to last week. I will give a brief synopsis of it here. But the majority of our time this morning will be around Points one, uh, two and three. Points two and three. But number one, the anti-church is devout in idolatry. The anti-church is devout in idolatry. Last week, we saw that the preaching of the gospel will cause a great disturbance among people. A great many people will be upset by the exclusivity of the gospel, by the fact that we say that there is only one way to God. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one Savior. One name, the name of Jesus Christ, by which man must be saved. We don't go out of our way to disturb people. They simply will be disturbed by the message, by the gospel, by the word of God. We don't provoke them. We don't have to provoke them. Their own sinful natures provoke them and they are disturbed and cause all sorts of unrest in their hearts and in their minds and in their souls, simply because of the gospel. They don't like to hear the gospel. They are against that message. And I love the way that it's put here, Paul's message. What was it? How was it, how was it given, given to us in a little brief snapshot? Paul says, God's made with hands are not God's. That's the accusation that's being brought against Paul. Demetrius, this silversmith who would make shrines of Artemis, this goddess that was worshipped in the city of Ephesus, was saying, Paul's going around and telling people that gods that are made with hands are not gods. And you know what? Demetrius was exactly right. That's exactly what Paul was saying. And it's the same message that we say to the world. God's made with hands are not God's. And that is a message that is still as relevant today as it was then in the first century. Because man is trying to find some God, to set up some God in their own life to replace Jesus Christ. Man, we are experts at making idols. We are experts at trying to find things in this world, in our lives, that we can put up to replace Jesus Christ. We don't want Jesus Christ. We want something else there instead. And so we find whatever we can to put there in the place of Jesus Christ. And the world hates to hear that that God that you've put up is not a God. And how often... Is it that man is trying to put himself there? 
And Demetrius hated this message. Not only did it take away from his business, his wealth, but why did it affect his pocketbook so much? Because there were people who believed Paul's message. There were people who heard Paul say, gods that are made with hands are not gods. And guess what then? They said, Jesus Christ is the Lord. They turned their lives to him and they began living like serious Christians. The people who had once gone to Demetrius' workshop and bought idols from him no longer came there to buy idols from him anymore. They were serious about living for the one true and living God and having nothing to do with idols. We, as Christians, cannot proclaim that gods made with hands are not gods if our lives do not match up with that message. It's never okay for Christians to live like gods made with hands are worthy of worship and live for them instead of living for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The silversmiths in Ephesus were greatly disturbed by the fact that those who now became Christians actually lived like Christians. And living like Christians, it made a difference. It went against the cultural and societal norms because we as Christians serve a risen and living Savior, Jesus Christ. In our world, how many people would be okay with us if we just said that we were Christians, but we didn't live like we were Christians? Does living like a Christian, does living for Jesus Christ make a difference to people? When you see Jesus Christ, when you see his glory, when you see him for who he truly is, when you worship him, it means that the blinders that you once had on your eyes have been removed so that we can clearly see all those other idols, all those other gods that people set up in their own lives, those are not gods. The delusion that we were once under is now gone, and it makes all the difference in the world. And now we guard our hearts against idolatry, against anything that would replace or remove Jesus from his rightful place as Lord over all, and we want to see Jesus Christ as Lord over everything. If you weren't here last week, that's what you missed. But number two, The anti-church is clouded with confusion. The anti-church is clouded with confusion. Do you know where we first meet confusion in the Bible? You have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Remember what happens there, this event, that all the people of the earth get together and They express this intent of making a name for themselves. We have this great idea, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower whose top reaches up to the heavens. They had this desire to build a city. Interesting, cities in the Bible are not always looked upon with favor. They're not always put in a great light. Why is that? 
Because where many sinners gather together, sin abounds. And so it was in Genesis 11 where man's pride was put on display. Where man thought that he could make a name for himself, that he could build something great himself, and that he could do it all without God, independent of God, not giving any thought to God whatsoever. God, we don't need you. We can do it all on our own. We can make ourselves great all on our own. We can pull ourselves together to show just how great and mighty we are and do that completely separated from God. What's God's response to them? Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Genesis eleven seven. 7. That city, that place was known as Babel because it was there the Lord confused man's language and dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Confusion reigned that day. That's where we first meet confusion in the Bible, in Genesis, but even as we go on to the book of Exodus, we see confusion again. The Lord promising to be with His people as they go into the land that He has promised to give them. He says this, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Exodus 23, 27. From these accounts, we begin to understand something about confusion in the Bible. It is a demonstration of judgment. It is not a good thing. It's not a neutral thing. It is a demonstration that something is terribly, terribly wrong. It shows that those who are confused are no friends of God. They are enemies of God, in fact. And in Acts 19, the anti-church is marked by confusion. You see that a couple times there in our verses. It should tell us where these people who are confused stand with God, and it's not in a good position. They are in a dangerous position as those who would have God's judgment upon them. We have to understand that this confusion was not a harmless, innocuous confusion. It was a confusion that enraged It says here, verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged, or they were filled with rage. Uncontrolled, unrestrained anger resided in the hearts of these people. Luke uses the same description back in his gospel, Luke chapter 4, with Jesus. Jesus is in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth. He reads from the book of Isaiah. He says that, He fulfills the passage that he has just read, and it was not received well by the people in the synagogue. It says this, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, Luke 4, 28. It's the same expression that we have here. Those people in Luke 4 were so enraged, they wanted to throw Jesus off of the cliff on which their town was built. People are enraged by the gospel message. People will be enraged against the messengers of the gospel. People will be enraged against Christ himself. And when people are enraged against this, guess what? We're in good company. We do not go out of our way to make people angry, to be upset with us, to cause a disturbance. No, 
it will happen in those who are against Christ and who are against His church. And here then are these enraged people who are crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it says the whole city was filled with confusion. How much confusion was there in the city? So much so that it says the whole city is filled. How much confusion is there in our world? What is it that you would expect to see in the world? Are we surprised if we find this great confusion around us? The confusion in Ephesus led the crowd to rush together to drag Gaius and Aristarchus into the amphitheater of Ephesus, a place that is said to have held 20 to 25,000 people. This could very well be a large, massive crowd, a mega anti-church, if you will. Gaius and Aristarchus, chosen because they were companions of Paul, they were helping Paul in the gospel ministry, Paul himself wanted to go into the crowd. Do you see that there? Most likely to give a defense. But the disciples and even the rulers in that area called the Asiarchs, who were Paul's friends, told him not to go into the crowd. Why did they say, don't go in there, Paul? Because they knew it would have threatened his very life. We must see that those clouded with confusion are not viewed as safe. No, they were dangerous in their confusion. Them being clouded by confusion keeps them bound by their sin and bound by their irrationality. And it is a dangerous place to be. So we've seen that the city is filled with confusion. That these people clouded with confusion are filled with rage. They are dangerous. But what is it that they're confused about? We see a few items they are confused about. First, they are confused about their message. Notice, some of them said one thing and some said another. They couldn't even get their message right. They didn't even agree on what they were speaking against in accusing these gospel ministers. They were not on the same page. They were not on the same script. What do we expect the message of the anti-church to be? Do we expect it to be one of clarity? Do we expect it to be one that makes sense? Do we expect it to be rational and clear-headed? No, the people are clouded in confusion. And so what is their message going to do? It's not going to clear things up. No, it's going to propagate this confusion. It's going to try to spread the confusion far and wide. It's going to attempt to get this confusion to infiltrate more and more hearts. And think about it for a moment. Think about the confusion in the world around us. How is that confusion often spread? It's presented to us as as education. How often is this confusion propagated as that which is smart and educated and intellectual? This This is what really smart people hold to. This is what really smart people believe. How often is this confusion presented as the popular opinion? This is the message that everybody holds. And it's the message that everyone should hold. It doesn't matter if everyone holds it, if it's not right, if it's not true. 
That's what always gets me about the polls that you see. You see polls. How many Americans believe this? How many Americans believe that? It doesn't matter if 99% of Americans believe something if it's not true. Just because 99% of Americans or 51% of Americans or the majority of Americans believe something doesn't mean that it's true, doesn't mean that it's right. If everybody holds to the confusion, I'm not going to hold to the confusion because it's not right. And let us not be, let us not be confused by it. There are many intelligent people who are off the charts in their IQs or whatever else they use to measure those types of things, but if they don't know Jesus Christ, then they're confused. (laughs) They can know everything about math and science and engineering and you name it. When all those things are said and done, what matters? Do you know Jesus Christ? Is He the Lord of your life? And this is why it's absolutely necessary, my friend, that we get the gospel right. Because if we do not get the gospel right, it only brings more confusion. But what does the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ do? It cuts through all the confusion. It brings light to darkness. It brings understanding to confusion. It brings salvation to those who are lost. It brings life to those who are dead. We cannot afford to be confused about this message, God's message, because if it is not God's message, God's gospel that we are proclaiming, then we are not proclaiming anything at all. We're only spreading the confusion. This is why, this is why we spread the gospel, because we want people to know who God is. God is great. God is the creator of all things. He's created everything. He's created us in his own image. After his own likeness. But we have spurned. We have rebelled. We have gone against this holy, righteous, infinite God. We have gone our own way. We've thought we know better. We can be like God on our own. We've missed the mark. We are sinners. We are unjust. We are the ungodly There is no one righteous, not even one. And we are bound, shackled, imprisoned by our sin. The darkness had closed in, but that is when Jesus Christ, God in the fullness of time, sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem us, to rescue us, to free us, to forgive us of our sins. To give us God's grace and mercy and love. And when you see that, when you see who God is, when you see who we are, when you see who Christ is, then God is at work to bring about a response. There has to be a response that goes with the gospel. Like back in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches the gospel and they ask him, what must we do? How do we respond? Repent and believe. In the gospel, confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Believe that he died on the cross, 
bearing our sin and our shame and rose again from the dead on the third day and now has ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning, that he will one day come again to take us to himself. That's the gospel that we're proclaiming. That's the gospel that clears away, that cuts away the confusion. Don't be confused about it. And let us say this this morning. As we proclaim that gospel, it's not our responsibility to clear up the confusion of the anti-church's message. That's God's work. Our responsibility is to faithfully tell others about this true gospel, to live as those who have been transformed by this gospel in the world, and let God clear up the confusion in people's hearts and minds. Let God clear up the confusion that people are under. Let God bring people out from under the cloud of confusion to stand in the clear air of the light of day. Not only is the anti-church clouded in confusion about the message, they were also clouded in confusion about why they had come together. They didn't know why they were there. If you had asked the people gathered together, why have you come together? Most of them would say, I don't know. What is the principle that holds you here, that binds you together as one? Why is it that you have come together? How confused, how confused do you have to be if you don't even know why you're there? Well, there's just a large crowd gathering together, and I wanted to be a part of it, so I joined in. Looked like something important was going on, and I didn't want to miss out. Could it, could it be that it, it's the same today in the anti-church? They appear to be together. They appear to be a united and formidable front. But when it comes down to it, they don't know why they're together. Or at least they cannot agree on why they are together. They have joined the bandwagon. They have not missed out, but they have no clue as to what binds them together, what brings them together, or even what keeps them together. Maybe this is a point for us to flip that question around. We know that the anti-church was confused about why they came together. Do we as Christ's church know why we come together? I find that there is often too much confusion about that simple question. Too many Christians are confused about why we come together as Christ's church, and that should not and must not be so. Are you confused about why we get together? Why do we come together? Why are, why are you here this morning? And do you understand that with absolute clarity? Or is there confusion? How do you answer that question? Why do we come together? If your answer to that question about why you come to church is all about you, then there is a fundamental problem with your answer. If your answer to that question is all about gaining some nostalgic feeling for yourself, 
then there is a fundamental problem with your answer. If your answer to that question is all about checking some box of religious duty that you feel you have to do, then there is a fundamental problem with your answer. If your answer is about how you feel less guilty, that it eases your conscience to come to church, then there is a fundamental problem with your answer. What should our answer be? Maybe a simple answer is the best way to start. We gather together as Christ's church because we desire to worship the Lord, to meet with the Lord more, and to feed on His Word and ordinances. And we want to do that as often as we can. Now, obviously, there is more that can be said than that, but that's the standard by which we should judge if we have quality worship. Let me say that again. We gather together as Christ church because we desire to worship the Lord, to meet the Lord more, and to feed on His Word and ordinances, and we want to do that as often as we can. Is that why we gather together? Let's suppose for a moment that a young man came to me who had an interest in a young lady. And I asked that young man, tell me about the relationship you have with this young woman. And the young man said to me, well, it's a very good relationship. It's a, it's a great relationship. I, I, I'm very thankful for this relationship. It means a lot to me in my life. Tell me the specifics about your relationship. Well, we're, we get along very well. I don't have any problems with her. Uh, uh, everything seems to go along just, just, just fine. In fact, I think that I might want to marry this woman. I probed further about their relationship and what that looked like in their time that they spend together. That man would say to me, well, yes, we, we spend some time together. I mean, uh, you know, in fact, we spend an hour a week together. Any more time? No, no, just, just an hour a week. That's all, that's all that we need. We're good after that. That's, that's our relationship. Just an hour a week. And you want to marry this woman? Let me tell you something. If my wife, who's now my wife, when we were dating, if she only wanted to see me one hour a week, I'd look for somebody else. You content with an hour, hour and a half, a week? Listen, 
we gather together as Christ's church because we desire to worship the Lord, to meet with the Lord more, and to feed on his word and ordinances, and we want to do that as often as we can. Give me more, God, give me more of his word. Give me more of the Lord's table. Give me as much as I can have, as I can take. That's Christ, the husband, the head, and the church, his bride, his body coming together. And all that confusion is cleared away as we as Christ's bride, we look to our husband, to him who is our head, and we desire him above all else. When Christ has the proper place of preeminence in our lives, we see clearly why we gather together and why we want to be together and why we never tire of it. Because we cannot be confused about these things. We cannot be confused about why we come together. And I think the danger is that confusion and idolatry often go hand in hand. Confusion and idolatry often go hand in hand. Isaiah 45 and 16 says this, All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Is not this what we see happening in these verses? The makers of idols and the idolaters are in confusion together. Ultimately, what are they confused about? They are confused about life, confused about purpose, confused about what is right and what is wrong, confused about the distinction between godliness and sinfulness, confused about what is true and about what is false. It is only God who can lead one out of this confusion. It is only God who can remove the cloudiness, murkiness, and haze from our minds so that we are able to see and understand and think with absolute clarity about what is right and what is true and what is holy and what gives meaning. Think with absolute clarity about who God is, about who we really are as sinful men. Think honestly about what Christ has done to remove our sinfulness, to reconcile us to God. Would you, maybe this morning, need to ask the Lord, Lord, there's confusion in my heart, there's confusion in my life, remove that, take it away. I don't want it there anymore, I want to see with absolute clarity, I want your glory to fill my gaze. For the Christian, there is no contentment in confusion. Number three, quickly, the anti-church is resolute in rebellion. The anti-church is resolute in rebellion. Here's what gets me about these verses. They, they try to quiet down the crowd. They send in this man named Alexander, but Alexander is a Jew. I don't think he's going to make a defense for Christianity. I think, I don't, I think he's going to try to separate himself from the Christians as a Jew. And they don't want to hear even from a Jew. They don't want to listen to reason. They don't want to, to hear anything. They want to remain in their confusion. They want to remain in their rebellion. And so what does it say there in verse 34 that they do? 
For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine that. Imagine being there with 20 to 25,000 people, possibly, chanting with one voice for two hours the same six words over and over and over and over again. Imagine that. What's amazing is, as I thought about this, it's, that's the message that we hear in our world 24-7. The chanting of great as Artemis of the Ephesian goes on into our day. We hear it all around us. We hear people worshiping and wanting to worship other things, worship themselves, worship their own pride. Is that reverberates and echoes in the messages that are all around us, what do we do with it? What do we do when we hear great as Artemis of the Ephesians over and over and over again? Do we think, "Hmm, well, maybe they have a point. Maybe they're not so bad on this or that. No, no. What, What did the Christians do when they heard this for two hours? They say, well, maybe they have a point. Maybe Artemis is great. No, what did they do? They held fast to Jesus Christ. They held fast to who He is. They held fast to His truth and to His word and to what they believed. Even the the people's resoluteness and their rebellion didn't change the way that the Christians acted. Didn't change the way the church acted. And think about this. What happens to Artemis? What happens to Artemis. Where is Artemis today? Her temple eventually is torn down. And how many people are using those exact words, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, how many people are saying that, that? How many people are worshiping her today? No one. How many people are living for Artemis of the Ephesians? No one. How many people are going to the world and telling people how great Artemis is? No one. How many people today are willing to sacrifice and serve and give of themselves to this Artemis to the point of death? No one. This is what happens to the anti-church. They are brought to nothing. They have nothing to show for, for all of their devoutness, for all of their determination, for all of their resolution. In the end, they do not get anywhere. In the end, they do not and will not and cannot triumph. But how completely different is Christ? God's temple is being built, and it is His church with Him as the cornerstone, how many people are living their lives for Jesus Christ, how many people are willing to sacrifice and serve and give of themselves for Christ, even to the point of death? How many people are going out into this world and saying, great is the Lord Jesus Christ and greatly to be praised? Artemis did not triumph. She was nothing. The anti-church did not triumph. She proved herself to be nothing. But Jesus Christ has triumphed. He's triumphed over sin, over death, and will continue to triumph. And nothing and no one will be able to stop his triumph. As hard as they try, as hard as the anti-church will try to prevail, she will not. She will not succeed. But Christ will prevail. And it will be on earth and under heaven And over everything, where one day, everyone will bow. 
every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those resolute in their rebellion will not last, will not stand in the end, but who will stand? Jesus Christ and all of those who are His, all of those who He has saved and redeemed, all of those who follow Jesus Christ with all that they were, with all that they had, those who proclaim this gospel and herald this message of Jesus Christ in the world, and it will make all the difference in the world. Because then, God's church that He has designed will do and will be what we were supposed to do and who we were supposed to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would take your truth. You planted deep in us to shape and fashion us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us I pray, not to be those who are clouded in confusion, not to be those who give any thought to remain in rebellion, to stay in rebellion, but of those who have given ourselves, our lives to you. That we say now, we, we follow King Jesus in this world because King Jesus is king forever. He will last. No other king, no other kingdom will last but his and his alone. And our commitment is to him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.